Last month, President Biden threw his support behind international proposals to suspend COVID vaccines patent rights. Madison is president, yes. 1815. Okay. There's 173 patents that issue. Okay, 173. <laughs> I know so, people in Northern California that have more patents than that. <laughs> that's, that's 173. Okay. So let's okay. fast forward to 1860. In the year 1860, there were about 7,500 patents that issued. So that, that's a significant jump. But after years, the Civil okay. War, yeah, after the uh-huh. Civil War from 1865 to about 1890, we averaged about 15,000 patents per year. So if you just my think goodness, about, you, know, you compare that 50 year period, 1815, 173, 1865, you're up to 15,000 patents. It just shows you there's a parallel there between innovation and development and industrialization and this explosion in patents. But let me get back to your question about humanitarian aspects. Um, there's always a consideration in patent law, uh, both internationally and, and, and nationally, about what to do when you, have a, when you have an emergency, a health emergency, for example. What do like you do a pandemic. You, a pandemic. A pandemic, yeah. What do you do when you have uh, somebody who's got a patent? Let's say you have somebody who has a patent on the life-saving drug. And if you have a patent, you have a right to prevent anybody else from practicing it. And let's say the person who has that patent on a life-saving drug, which everybody needs, stands up and says, you know, I'm just angry at the world today. I'm not going to let anybody else make this drug, and I'm not going to make any of it myself. (laughs) That is a legal concept. And did you know that patents do not give you the right to make a product, use a product, or sell a product? And if not, then what the heck are patents good for anyway? You'll find out in this episode. Hey there, news peelers. Today is June 11, 2021, and this is Adele, host of the History Behind News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors from around the world who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peeling the history behind news, the histories of many countries we read, watch, and hear about in our news media. For example, whole series on Ukraine's, Iran's, Russia's, and China's histories. And of course, several series on the US economy, culture, politics, environment, science, and much more. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. Several months ago, India and South Africa drafted a proposal for the World Trade Organization to suspend coronavirus vaccine intellectual property protections, including patent rights. The intent of this proposal is to boost vaccine production and to bolster access for developing countries such as India and South Africa. For some time, the United States, our country, held out against this proposal. But last month, on May 5th, President Biden's administration finally relented and now supports the suspension of COVID patent rights. But waiving U.S. patent protections is a pretty extraordinary step. 
And that's not just my opinion. According to the New York Times, it is also the opinion of Ms. Catherine Tai, the U.S. Trade Representative. She stated, This is a global health crisis, and the extraordinary circumstances of the COVID-19 pandemic call for extraordinary measures. Global health activists welcome the administration's decision, but they complain that it's not enough, that pharma companies should provide technical know-how and personnel to help make the vaccines. And they have a point. Patents aren't like cooking recipes. You can't just read them out loud and start making vaccines. You need the technology to be transferred, not to mention the raw materials and other resources. But to put matters in perspective, just because the U.S. has had a change of heart about the temporary waiver of COVID patents, it doesn't mean that a waiver will actually happen. First, there's the strong opposition of the pharmaceutical industry. They're not exactly overjoyed about giving up their patent rights. Their position is that pharmaceutical companies have taken great risks to make these vaccines and that suspending their patents will discourage future collaborations between the pharma industry and government to combat another health crisis. As one former health executive tweeted, who will make the vaccine next time? Then there is the European Union. As reported by the Wall Street Journal, the EU strongly opposes the suspension of patent rights. Instead, it proposes its own alternatives. For example, the EU proposes that to achieve quicker results, we should negotiate based on existing intellectual property trade rules. It also proposes subsidies to expand production, the lifting of export restrictions on vaccines and raw materials, compensation for patent holders that exclude profits, and other measures. It should be noted that the EU's opposition is a big deal, because without them joining US, China, and dozens of other countries, it is highly unlikely that any suspension of intellectual property rights will happen, or will happen quickly enough. It's no surprise that building international consensus is complicated, and conversations about the coronavirus pandemic have been, well, in addition to being political contentious, they too have been complicated. But what about patents? They're pretty straightforward, right? You invent something, you get a patent. <laughs> Not so much. As it turns out, patents are also complicated. I guess that's why you need patent attorneys. To better understand the history of patents, we spoke with Mr. Steve Pepe and Dr. Sam Brenner. Mr. Pepe is a partner at the law firm of Ropes and Gray with 25 years of experience in litigating patent infringement cases and has been recognized as a super lawyer every year since 2013. He has taught patent law and intellectual property law at Toro Law School. Dr. Brenner is an attorney with a PhD in U.S. history, our kind of guy. He's counsel at the law firm of Ropes and Gray, where he litigates intellectual property cases. Dr. Brenner has taught at the University of New Hampshire School of Law, the University of Michigan, Brown University, and the University of Rhode Island. Links to Mr. Pippi's and Dr. Brenner's professional bios their extensive publications, presentations, and other accomplishments and awards are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Mr. Pepe and Dr. Brenner and I, the three of us, peel the history behind this news. Stephen, Sam, it is such a pleasure to have you on our show today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. So <laughs> patents and patent disputes, 
are hardly ever mentioned in popular news. Uh, yeah, sometimes CNBC or Bloomberg talk about it because they cover business. You know, you don't hear about patents, let's say, in CNN or Fox News. But recently, after President Biden mentioned COVID patents, that changed. All of a sudden, everybody's talking about patents, and everyone has an opinion about what should be done with COVID patents. <laughs> All of this begs the question: What is exactly a patent, and how did our country come to have patents? Well, that is a a great question, and it has a, a very sort of a seminal great, question. <laughs> it is a seminal question, and there's a very long history about where patents come from, and in particular, U.S. patents. And it, it goes way, way back to to actually the Renaissance. That's where uh, we really have the start of of the patent system uh, in in Venice in the the fourteen seventies or so. Um, Italy. In, yeah, in Italy during the Renaissance. Now I feel doubly bad for canceling my vacation last <laughs> last year due to COVID. <laughs> I I made it to Venice right before COVID, and I was good I was for you. There. I'm jealous. Yeah, yeah, it, it was great. Um, but from Venice, where the first patent system was formed, um, it spread throughout Europe, and it, it eventually made its way to Great Britain uh, in the in the 1500s, and then uh, the colonies here in the states. Uh, they did what they they often did, which was borrow from from the mother country, from Great Britain, and that's really where we got the concept of patents. It went from Venice to Great Britain to the U.S. and and I think I think the the another interesting aspect of that that journey is sort of why this happened. Uh, in Venice, there were these incredibly strong uh, mercantile guilds. And there's a very strong historical argument that the reason the patent system came about in the 1470s was to allow sort of individual inventors, the Venetian citizens and foreigners, uh, to oh, compete. That's so with progressive. The that's so ahead of their time, isn't right? It? So, so, yeah. and 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 when it when the patent system spreads and comes to to, to Britain, there's the reason for that in, in part or in significant part is because Britain was trying to encourage people to bring technological innovation from the continent. Over to Britain, so this was very specifically part of a, uh, a an approach on trade. By continent, you mean European continent to the island, yeah. the British Isles. That's correct. And then, and then, you know, that concept of the patent system evolved and changed in in Britain over time, and it wasn't used in quite the same way all the time. But then it eventually got to the colonies uh, and was used in very different sorts of ways, uh, and then uh, shifted and 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 was transformed during the. Uh, the first years after the revolution uh, and then into the early republic. So we can talk a bit more about that as well. If you're yeah, but you, you started this whole discussion with a really interesting question, which is what exactly is a patent? Yeah, as, so many people talk about it. Oh, I got to get a patent. Okay, what is it? Yeah, when, when we have to teach patents to juries and to lay juries um, when we, we litigate patents, what we often do is we have a, a slide that we put up on the screen that shows a, a house with a backyard with a with a fence around it, and the way we like to wait, we're getting to real estate now. We're getting into real estate <laughs> because the average person can understand real estate and can understand property, real property. What a patent really is is it's a property right. It gives you uh, that fence around your house, that fence around your idea, and you have the right to exclude people from going onto your property. Patent is the same thing. You can exclude others from using 
your property, using your invention, using your idea. What a patent really is, is the right to exclude others from using your invention. And it's a, it's a grant from the U.S. government to us as inventors saying you have this right to stop people from using your invention. And I think, I think Steve's point there is, is sort of a critical one, which is a lot of people, I think, in my experience, find, believe that patents give them the right to do something. If I have a patent on my invention, I have the right to make my invention. And that's simply not true. What you have the right to do is prevent somebody else from making your invention. Uh, but wait, 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 wait. I, I let's go back. So I have a patent. I go make a product. Well, the product evolves. So it's a little bit different than the original invention. Well, you're saying that I don't necessarily have the right to make that product. Is that what you're saying? That someone sue me on that product. Is that where you're going with that? That's that's absolutely correct. So if you let's say that you have a patent for a complicated engine that uses a particular sort of valve in it, and somebody else has a patent on that that valve. Uh, if you make your engine using that valve, the, the, the person who owns the patent on the valve can sue you for patent infringement for, for using that valve in your engine. So you don't have the right to make the invention that you've claimed in your patent. You just have the right to prevent anybody else from making that, that engine. So it's, this is a sort of fundamental misunderstanding of what patent rights truly are. Uh, under so our it's not a patent is not a right to commerce in a certain good. It's a right to keep people from commerce in your invention without your permission. Am I saying that correctly? That's, that's absolutely right. And then the next logical question is, why would the government give you this right to exclude others from making and using your invention? Heck yeah, you invent it, why not share it with people? Well, that, that's sort of the odd thing here is that there's a quid pro quo that's inherent in the patent system. And the quid pro quo is you as the inventor, disclose your patent to the world, disclose your invention, and we will give you the right to exclude others from making it. But the reason why we're, we're doing this, we're letting you, um, uh, we're giving you this right in exchange for disclosure is we want your invention out there. So if people want to use it, they can go to you and they can seek a license, they could ask permission. And the ultimate reason for doing this is because inventions build upon themselves. You think about where we are today and the acceleration and development of technology because inventions build upon themselves. We want inventions out there so that people can take them, use them, improve them, build upon them, it's that that and is what they incrementally build up upon themselves. It's not like someone just invented a car out of whole cloth. It's hundreds of thousands of inventions that that have added up to come to Tesla, right? Right, exactly. You know, what's an interesting fact that I often tell people about, and I blow them away with it. When you look, <laughs> at my, yeah. when, when you look at my smartphone, uh huh, how many patents do you think? relate to technology in this smartphone. I'm going to put you on, on the spot. See, if as a former patent lawyer, you might, <laughs> you might know the answer. But now you're telling people about my background. Um, you know, I don't know, but I can tell you Samsung and Apple about seven, eight, 10 years ago, were just duking it out in patent courts in uh, Northern California and San Francisco. And also, I think for a while in New York. So it's got to be a lot. 
So it, there you go. I gave you the lawyerly answer. You like that? It depends. It depends. It's on the order of 400,000 patents are inherent in the technology in a smartphone between the cellular chips, the screens, the software, 400,000 patents is my goodness in a phone. So, so inventions let, build upon themselves. Yeah. And let me yeah. let me go back to what what I think Steve you know what Steve was saying as well. This is often referred to as the patent bargain, uh, which is where, as Steve said, you disclose, you make, you you write up if you're going to get a patent, you write up in your application. Here's what the invention is. Here's how you make it. Here's everything you do with it, and then that gets published, and everybody can see that anywhere around the world. And in exchange, the government will give you a certain amount of time during which you can prevent other people from making it. That term can be 20 years. At one point, it was 17, whatever that would be. But, but that's the bargain. We, you come forward with all of your, your, your information, and then we'll give you this monopoly uh, for a limited amount of time. To get that monopoly, the inventor or his or her company that employs his, him or her actually goes back and forth, back and forth with the patent office for 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 a while they call that prosecution not as in criminal prosecution but as prosecution of a patent why do we have such a rigorous system why can't you just register a patent for people to know hey this is my patent this is my invention i registered it and that i i think uh, i'm going to cut steve off because i i love talking about this i think that gets to exactly some of the history here which is that the united states patent system has evolved over time at one point it was uh, a very primitive so-called examination system then it was a registration system for a very short time then it was a more what, what happened when it went to registration so, system so let's let's go back as I, as we were talking about the patent system evolved in the uh, period of the articles of confederation and then the early republic what you had during the period uh, of the just before the revolution and then during the articles of confederation is you had a bunch of colonies and then a bunch of states mm -hmm. uh, each of which was giving sometimes its own patents out and we saw this in particular with the steamboat there were a number wait, wait, of wait, wait. each different jurisdiction so wait so so if i let's say you're talking about 1784 seven i'm sorry 17 yeah 1784 is the, the revolution war has ended i row my boat from New Jersey across the Hudson to Manhattan. So now I'm in New York. So arguably my patent in New Jersey no longer holds in Manhattan. Is that, that what you're saying? That's arguably, I'm gonna go with 1787 because it's a, it's a more interesting year because uh, okay. there was a guy named John Fitch who was one of the people who claimed to have uh, invented the steamboat. And he got, I think out of New York, he got uh, the New York legislature uh, to issue him a patent on uh, making and using all steamboats in New York. And uh, that was a problem because there were other inventors, including a guy named James Rumsey, and there were various others who were also inventing steamboats elsewhere. And so if you took, if they took their steamboat, made it somewhere else and took it to New York, you had a serious problem right then because maybe they're infringing a patent. This was one of the considerations. Right now there are several patents potentially. There are several. That's exactly right. And we don't know. Oh my know. God, that's a nightmare. That's right. We don't know whose patents are controlling. In fact, these two guys, Fitch and Rumsey, actually uh, at different times presented to, to George Washington, among others, their different ideas. And we have a letter. There's a letter in the Library of Congress from Washington to Jefferson saying, well, they're, they're arguing about who did what. And then there's a patent. Uh, there's a pamphlet war about who invented what, when. And this is kind of this is kind of very complicated. So this is the background that we take into the uh, framing of the Constitution. 
basically, the framers get together, and it's one of the considerations, one of the concerns about the Articles of Confederation is that it doesn't have a strong enough federal system uh, and unified government to allow for commerce of certain sorts to take place. And patents were one of the considerations. Steve, I know you love to talk about, about the, the foundation of the patent system under the Constitution, so I'll, I'll pass it to you. Yeah, well, Steve, share with us, please. <laughs> what I think is most fascinating. So, so you guys are absolutely right. There was this conflict amongst the colonies, different pats, patent systems. You know, which one is controlling? If I get a patent in New York, you get one in Connecticut, and it was really just a an absolute mess. Uh, but the founding fathers had had great vision, and they they realized they needed to have a centralized federal patent system, and they included one sentence in the Constitution. It's one all patent sentence. lawyers know Article One, Section Eight, Clause Eight. Congress shall have the power to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited time to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. That one sentence gave us our patent system as well as our copyright system. And what's interesting is what's the whole purpose? The whole purpose is to promote the progress of science and the useful arts. It's about what's good for the public, what's good for the country. It's not about rewarding the inventor. It's about putting your inventions out there to promote science, promote the useful arts, which goes back to that patent bargain quid pro quo that we talked about. But so we have this great language that allows Congress to set up the patent system, which they did, but uh-huh. they got it wrong. Well, how did, they get so. it? how did they get it wrong? Well, they got it wrong by basically saying it is, you know, after we became our independent country, that people who wanted to have patents, uh, there would be three people in the government that would have to review these patent applications. And three people in the government. Yeah, three people in the government. You got Tell the- that to the patent office now. You get three employees only. <laughs> you got the Secretary of War. You got the Secretary of State. And if I got that wrong, Sam's going to... No, no, it's right. It was Jefferson, Jefferson. at the time. Specifically Jefferson. So Secretary- Jefferson, Knox. Yep. And, right. then the, and then the Attorney General. It's not like... Who was part-time, guys- by the way, that, at that time. Yeah, it's not like these folks had... You know, more important things to do than to be examining <laughs> Um, So that that system coming out of the box didn't really work great. Uh, and at that point, that's when the system changed. Uh, and I think it went right to a registration system, uh, which created all sorts of its own problems because that registration system, everybody was just registering their patents uh, and saying, I have an invention on this, an invention on that. And what it really did is it created these really weak patents where the, you know, the courts were forced to try to figure out, you know, is this an invention or not? Should it be an invention? And it, it really was just a terrible system. And eventually we went back to an examination now, system. Now you, now that you explained the registration system a little bit more, um, I'm betting that if something like that happened, all the VC investing startups that have patents, these great patents will just suck up dry because they don't know if those patents have any value because no one's right is that uh, I, I sam don't, i don't i don't necessarily agree there are there have been systems around the world that are more registration systems than there are in examination systems i tend to think are they still around uh i don't know if they're still around uh but they, they're not they don't necessarily fail because of what you're describing uh i think that i, I tend to think an examination system a professional examination system like the U.S. went to in the 1830s and, and which we have today with a patent office where there mm-hmm. are experts 
uh, who look at the patents and understand the prior art and understand what existed before and whether there's something new here or not. I tend to think that that's more robust, but, um, and we can talk about this a little bit more, uh, maybe, maybe further on, but there are arguments that these different systems uh, affect uh, commerce in different sorts of ways. Yes, there might be some VC funding that, that dries up, but maybe not. Maybe, maybe what happens is VCs uh, are very interested in this because anybody can get a patent. It's very easy to get a oh patent. Oh boy, it becomes the wild west. Wild yeah. west, but everybody can say, look, I've got a patent. I've got something here. And then what you end up with, you'd end up with a system, I think, where the lawyers really go at it even more than they do today. Uh, which would give Steve and me more to do, perhaps, uh, which is not a bad thing. But, but oh, that slipped out, didn't it? That's right. That's right. I'm not supposed to take that. No. Well, you know, let, 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 let me just put my two cents in there. So in 1836, when, um, when Congress was debating, do we stick with a registration system or do we go to an examination system? They, you know, they looked into the registration system and they, they concluded in a Senate report that a considerable portion of uh, the patents that were registered were worthless and void, and I they see. actually called the registration system an embarrassment to real bona fide inventors. And that was really uh, that's strong language. It's, it's very strong language, and we've had a um, an examination system ever since 1836. So that that stuck around for a while, and it, it seems to work pretty well. So I do disagree with my my colleague, my esteemed colleague, a bit. Uh, on 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 that point. But well, we'll leave that disagreement on, on the table for now. <laughs> Why don't we take a short break and then talk about what comes next? Uh, America's economy is expanding, and uh, we're industrializing as a nation in the 19th century. And we'll see whether or not uh, patents play any role in it. We'll be right back in a moment. Detailed articles about CRISPR patents have showed up in the Wall Street Journal and other business-related publications. And there's a lot of drama and much controversy here. To better understand what's happening with CRISPR patents, and to also understand the CRISPR technology, why it's even important, not just important to the scientific and business communities, but also to the general population, I spoke with Professor Samantha Zions of Stanford Law School. The link to my conversation with her is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Mr. Pepe and Dr. Brenner. So, Steve, Sam, our founders and early administrations uh, establish a patent system and to get a patent an inventor needs to go through this rigorous examination process. And we had a debate about that, uh, you and uh, Steve and Sam. Um, but as you gentlemen were teaching me about patents and walking me through its early years, I couldn't help thinking that at that time, in comparison to England, America didn't really have a robust industry. I mean, patents are well and good, but you have to have the industry to make goods and go out and fetch patents. How, how did this get rolling on industrialization and patents? So that, that's a really, I'm, I'm going to start this off, but then I'll hand it off to, off to Sam. You saying that's a really me. terrible question. To how dare you ask that? <laughs> that is so obvious. Everyone knows the answer to that. It's, it's a really great question. And um, you know, our founding fathers were just amazing people with tremendous foresight and one of those gentlemen, Alexander Hamilton, uh, recognized that we were a new nation, recognized that 
we needed to become more industrialized, that we needed to become more uh, advanced in our technology. And um, Sam, you want to explain sort well, of I, what, what I, he did? I, I, well, I want to, I want to, you're I want to take a broader do the Hamilton show here. No, I want to take a broader a broader view about this as well, which is that the the development of industrialization in the United States and around the world um, sort of it wasn't solely driven, obviously, by a patent system. It, it worked hand in hand with a patent system. What mm -hmm, we see mm -hmm. is this entire period, the period of the American Revolution, the period of the early republic going through the 19th century, going into the 20th century. Uh, there's a long and, and, and fun history about the development of corporations, the development of technology. Once you get certain industrialization started, uh, other industrialization builds on top of it. Once you have certain sorts of machines or engines or railroads or the equivalent steamboats, uh, uh -huh. a, lot of, a lot of commerce is going to develop thereafter. Uh, the patent system became critically important as part of it. I do think what's fascinating is that in the early republic, there was a serious problem where the United States had a lot of raw materials, but lacked some of the technology, for example, that, say, England had. Uh, one of the things in particular that was important was uh, something called the Arkwright machine, which was a machine in, in Britain uh, that was uh, that used water power to to make fabric, to operate as a loom and to card uh, to card wool and and uh, and and then weave it. Ultimately, what we that was considered high tech back then. It was it was high critically tech. important technology because you didn't need to get as many people sitting in front of looms hand weaving uh, all of this material. If you wanted to make fabric, you wanted to be industrialized, you could use this technology. And and Britain was very protective of this this uh, technology. They didn't want anybody to take it out. And there were several people from the American side, from even from Britain, who actually sort of made their their fortunes and their reputations by taking that technology and stealing it. And bringing it to the United States, uh, Francis Cabot Lowell, sort of famously, a, a, wait, an American, we, wait, 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 we stole technology from. Well, Britain? I would, I would say, developed it by watching. I mean, let me give an example. Francis Cabot Lowell, out of Massachusetts. You're talking. You're not talking about China. You're talking about the U.S. I'm talking about the U.S. He goes to England. I think it's in Scotland, actually, and he watches these machines, and he memorizes how to build them. And then he comes back during the War of 1812, just at the beginning of the War of 1812. In fact, I think uh, Lowell's ship was stopped and, and his whole ship was searched for contraband to see that there was, among other things, that there were no none of these machines that were being brought back. But he'd memorized it all. And he came back. I should have done a brain scan on him. That's right. He comes back to the United <laughs> States and he and he and he uses what he learned and he builds a so he builds a machine and he builds a factory uh right near where I am, uh, outside of Boston in Waltham. Uh, and he builds uh, a factory on Wait, the Charles question. River. Yeah. Did they at first try to go to Britain and say, hey, you have this technology. Can we license this patent from you? I, I think that there were efforts to do it, but Britain knew that it wanted to maintain its monopoly on on its ability to create uh, the sort of nationalism kicks in. Yeah. yeah. So there's others. And so Lowell's one I example, see. by the way, Lowell, Massachusetts, later named in honor of Lowell, because that's where one of the mill centers of, of the United States, uh, based on using the same technology. There were other people uh, who, you know, including people from Britain who, who brought some technology over. Uh, other people tried to steal more of this technology and they got patents. This is the important part. They were able to get patents on this material in the United States, even though their patents weren't describing innovations. They weren't anything different from what had been in Britain. They were just in the United States and they were granted in part because they were so important to the United States' economy. 
this was this was a foundational element of some of the industrialization in the United States. Some of these technologies were patented in Britain through creative ways we bring those technologies over to America, memorizing it, what have you. And we patent it again here. But technically, you can't really patent something that's already been invented. But that happens here anyway, right? On the technology that we're bringing over it, from Britain. It, 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 it does in this particular instance. And I, and I think that this raises an interesting point we haven't talked about yet when we talk about what patents are. Patents are a form of intellectual property that's geographically limited. Uh, a patent in the United States protects uh, in the United States. And patents in other countries protect in other countries. And that matters to the conversation that you sort of started us all off with, which is something of, you know, what, what's going on with the COVID patents and, and, and things. And yeah. I'm sure we'll, we'll get there, but, but this, these were patents in the United States for revealing to the public exactly how to make these machines. And uh, even though there's a very good argument that this was not new, uh, there was a reason for granting those patents and giving these particular inventors and their investors uh, a path forward to continue to build up the industrial might of particular areas in the United States. And it, it really does make an interesting comparison to think about us as this fledgling new nation stealing technology from other countries. And now think about us today where there's a role reversal. <laughs> we are the company that's on the cutting edge. We have all the technology. We have you know, developed uh, so much R&D, so much uh, so many new technologies, inventions, and yet now we're concerned about other countries coming here and engaging in industrial espionage and taking our technology and bringing them back to their countries. It's uh, quite a role reversal, and uh, it's an interesting contrast. Well, and I think it really the, is the the early the, the period period we're talking about. What's fascinating? I grew up in Boston. And a lot of us learned about Lowell, and nobody hid the fact that he'd memorized. This was a great thing. Wow, he memorized how the patriotic, patriotic. Yeah. He came back and he built this wonderful thing. That's something we learned in school. Uh, you know, it's a it's a different take uh, than perhaps but, a patent lawyer would have. But let's let's just be clear about something. It's not just American citizens that were doing this. There was a guy. Uh, his name was Slater the Trader. He was, he was from no, that wasn't his name. His name was Samuel <laughs> Slater. But, but he was, no, I like Slater the tra Trader better. <laughs> trader. So Slater was a, a British citizen. He heard that the U.S. was paying um, for families to come over with technology and was supporting them and taking care of them. And he said, you know what? This sounds like a great deal. And he stole technology from Great Britain as a British citizen. Brought, came over brought to, technology. He brought, brought technology. Brought technology. <laughs> uh, came over to the United States. And uh, I think the technology he brought over related to, to cotton, uh, processing cotton or spinning. Which spin was big, which was big in antebellum. And I mean, going forward, that was cotton was a big industry. Yeah, huge industry. And this guy made so much money. I mean, in, in today's dollars, he would be a, a, a billionaire. And he made that money because he was able to go from Britain to the U.S. and bring this technology. That's back. like an American citizen bringing, I don't want to, uh, Sam, I got your back. I'm not going to use the word steal, <laughs> bringing a technology from America to China or to whatever. Uh yeah, and and, oh. and Adele, I think I think you know avoiding the word steal is is important in because if you think about what's happening, there's a there's a, a sort of 
deeper question here. If you have somebody like Lowell memorize a, how a machine works in England and then come to the United States and build it, has he stolen anything? Um, I mean, that's a that's a legal question that we're not going to get into. About it almost, it's almost a philosophical question. <laughs> right, so yeah. it's more than I, that. I would say he stole it. I mean, that's I, just, that's, I mean, I'm with that's you on that, thing. Steve. <laughs> I mean, um, so we, we are bringing uh, or, or stealing whatever you wish to uh, call it technology to our country. Is there a parallel uh, movement forward progress of inter uh, industrialization and our patent system? Do they dovetail? Do they intertwine? I mean, I think I, I think what 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 I you know what we said before is that is that they absolutely intertwine. Yeah. Uh, and and by the way, you know, we talked about standing on the shoulders of giants essentially before. Uh, mm. When you start with this industrialization, you start with certain sorts of machines. Which really, be, industrialization in America really kicked off after the Civil War. Like it was it, just it, full it, throttle. It, it kicked off, I would say, during and after the Civil War, the development yeah. of railroads, the development exactly. of, of, of the telegraph and various sorts of things. The railroads were particularly important. The, the industrialization needed to win the war was particularly important. But after the war, during and after the war, you have a massive boom in the number of patents that are granted, the number of patents that are applied for, and the number of oh, patents. Massive. Uh, oh, massive. I mean, I actually have some of the numbers because I knew we were going to. Oh, please share. So 1815. Like what? what are we 1815, which is still the um, you know, uh, early on. Madison is president. Yes. 1815. Okay. There's 173 patents that issue. Okay. 173. <laughs> I so, know people in Northern California that have more patents than that. <laughs> that's, that's 173. Okay. So let's okay. fast forward to 1860. In the year 1860, there were about 7,500 patents that issued. So that, that's a significant jump. But after years, the Civil okay. War, yeah, after the uh -huh. Civil War, from 1865 to about 1890, we averaged about 15,000 patents per year. So if you just my think goodness, about, you, know, you compare that 50-year period, 1815, 173, 1865, you're up to 15,000 patents. It just shows you there's a parallel there between innovation and development and industrialization and this explosion in patents. 15,000 is more than all the patents we had prior to that in our country's history. Um, we'll be back after a short break to talk about the 20th century, the age of super innovation. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. So there were all these wonderful mechanical and early electrical, if you will, inventions during the last decades of the 19th century. My, my, my family and I actually visited Alexander Bell's museum in a town called Bedak. It's very picturesque. It's in Nova Scotia. And looking at the pictures there, some of them, uh, you know, walls, 
you feel the energy of that era, sort of the collective excitement for all the inventions and innovations that would surely come just years later, 20th century. So uh, I'm just standing there, I was thinking, how did the patent office prepare for this exciting new century? Did they ask for more funds, more power for resources? <laughs> I mean, we're, you know, patents are increasing. So it's, it's interesting you should look at that exact time period because the commissioner of the U.S. Patent Office very famously said in 1899, everything that can be invented has been invented. I mean, that's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a quote you learn. In, in it's almost as good as the quote from the, wow. the CEO of IBM in the 1940s. Uh, said something like, there's only a market for five computers in the entire world. Uh, both oh, of boy. these books were, were uh, completely wrong. No, so wait, were, wait, if we go to the commissioner of, uh, of, 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 of patents, uh, what, what year did you say? 1890 what? 1899. So if he's coming out and saying everything that has been invented should be invented. Am I saying that correctly? Should be. Go ahead, say that Everything again. Everything that can be invented has been invented. So is he basically talking himself out of a job saying we should close the patent <laughs> office? <laughs> is, is... You know, I often wondered that because it's a very strange quote to be coming out of someone who's in charge of the patent. And, and it's a strange quote given what was going on in the United States at the time. I mean, let, let, you, you know, I don't think you can have a historical conversation about the patent system without talking about Thomas Edison. Uh, because more than a thousand patents, more than a thousand patents himself, right? U.S. patents. And a lot of those were uh, from the late 1800s, from the late 1900s. Exactly. Yeah. Um, some were from after 19, 1899. But but you see his his shop is just sort of churning out inventions. So why the head of the U.S. Patent Office would be thinking that that we're done with everything that had been invented uh, is sort of a baffling question. It's not it's not really clear. And I think that you probably have the beginnings here, or maybe even the continuations of uh, a, a, a long pendulum shift that, that goes on through the 20th century uh, between, uh, you know, back and forth from we are giving too much protection to, to inventors for things that aren't really uh, inventions on the one hand to we're not giving enough protection to people who are innovators uh, and we need to strengthen the patent system. Uh, on the other hand, and we keep going back and forth. And I, I suspect, though I haven't looked into this particular quote, that this is a, a period when we're suddenly saying maybe there's too much power, too much, you know, too much protection being given to particular people who invent things uh, because they're just making obvious variations of the same things that they've already done, and suggesting that what we need to do is open up to more, uh, to, to less uh, professionalized shops than, for example, Thomas Edison was right. But the, the point Sam is making, and it's a really good point, is, and that is over the last 120 years, there's been a constant struggle to try to achieve the right balance between protecting inventors, incentivizing inventors, incentivizing R&D, and making these inventions accessible to the public. And we see that the pendulum has swung back and forth to from very, very strong patent protection to very, very weak patent protection. And as the times change, the economy changes, events take place, you see that pendulum swing back and forth. Even during the course of my career over the last 25 years, I've seen that pendulum swing back and forth numerous times. And it's, it's a real uh, interesting thing to watch, look back 
historically. For example, you know, the early 1900s, you had cars, you had um, all sorts of new developments, the light bulb, the Wright brothers. There was so much innovation and that really strengthened the patent system. But then comes in the, the 1930s and 40s. And, and Sam, you want to give us some insight? Well, about I, this, this is where we're, we're, the patent system works hand in hand with what, what's happening in the rest of the country and the rest of the world. The early 20th century saw a serious concern grow in the United States about uh, trusts and monopolies, uh, horizontal and vertical integration, where you had massive, massive companies that were essentially intentionally trying to take over sections of the economy. And like there's standard a, oil, Rockefeller, standard oil, yeah. you know, U.S. Steel, whatever. So, so mm-hmm. there's this there's this serious concern about that, and a serious push to break the to break those trusts, antitrust concerns. And the patent system was tied up right in that because what critics of those monopolies said is these massive companies are getting patents that are powerful and they're blocking out anybody who wants to challenge them in the economy. What we need to do is we need to minimize the power of patents or reduce the protections afforded to patents to allow uh, others to compete and not allow these companies to just block off those areas of the economy. And I think that that's what helps lead in the 30s and 40s uh, and through the first part of the 50s probably as well to a system where patents didn't get as much protection as they, they they could get or they would later get. I think um, you're being you're being very generous with that. It, you know, very another very famous quote, 1949 Supreme Court in a dissent. One of the I think it was Judge Jackson. Justice Jackson. Yep. He said the only patent that is valid is one which this Supreme Court has not been able to get its hands on. I mean, <laughs> the Supreme Court was just pulling back on the scope of patent protection. They created this, patents. Yeah, they, they created this flash of genius test that if you want to get a patent, you have to demonstrate that there was this flash of genius, which is such a high standard. It really weakened the patent system. And we saw that pendulum then swing back in the 50s when we, we actually got a new patent statute that, that uh, came out in 1952, which is very similar to the statute we have today. And that really started the the building back up of the strength of the patent system between the, the 50s and you know probably up up until the 80s they started to gain momentum but there were still problems with the system uh, until the federal circuit got formed in 1982. A couple of comments. One yeah. is the flash of genius comment uh, by dissenting uh, dissenting Supreme Court Justice Jackson and. It really goes against this incremental development of inventions that we talked about. Um, when you're in a corporation or even a solo inventor in your garage, rarely do you wake up in the morning and say, Eureka, I got it. It usually that Eureka moment comes after months or years of working on something. So that the second comment that I have is why do we have this special court? the federal circuit for patents. I mean, we don't have a special court for civil rights, which is extremely important. We don't have special court for, uh, you know, uh, mass shootings. I'm getting too much into the news. I'll stop. But you get my point, right? Yeah. So it's a great question. And there was a big problem that existed in the in the 60s and 70s with forum shopping. And what do I mean by forum shopping? Yeah, what does that mean? Well, there are are a bunch of different court of appeals spread out all over the country. And each of those court of appeals basically have their own interpretation of the law. And what happened in the patent system 
is certain circuit courts uh, developed pro-patent. By the way, circuit courts are courts of appeals. So you go to a trial and then this is appeal. Okay. Yes. Yeah, And and Steve, let's let's back up for one second just to to be on the same. So all patent cases are handled through the federal court system, not the state court system. Yeah. There are uh, many federal district court judges, trial level judges scattered throughout the country. I think five or six hundred. I don't have the exact number. Uh, but but they handle all the trials or all the initial the cases initially for patents. And then after they make decisions, people can appeal those decisions to the next court up. Uh, the federal system is broken up into uh, a number of, of jurisdictions, a number of geographic areas. The first circuit, the second circuit, the third circuit, different, you know, uh, mm-hmm. different states are in different circuits. And until the federal circuit, until the United States Court of Appeals for the federal circuit was created in the 80s, uh, all patent cases would just go to the geographic circuit that you were located in. So if you were, if you had brought a patent case in Boston, for example, within Massachusetts, you would and appealed it. You would go to the what, first what circuit. circuit number is that? It's the first circuit. First circuit. So if oh. you were in in Northern California, you'd go Which to the ninth nice circuit. circuit. Yeah. So, so wait, if, you if if I may, please. Yeah. So I I sue someone. It goes on appeal in this first circuit in Boston, and they say Adele, your patent is good. Voila, awesome. And then that person goes and starts using the product that I told him is infringing my patent in San Francisco. I go to San Francisco and I say, and and I sue that person again, him or her. And the Ninth Circuit, the Court of Appeals in San Francisco may say, no, 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 Adele, your your patent is not valid. So that person is, <laughs> so I have the situation yeah. where half a country is using my patent, you know, is infringing. It, this it is a disaster. Creates- it creates a real mess. It creates it a does. real mess and lots of conflicts between the various circuit courts. But even more fundamentally, if I have a patent and I want to sue you, I will try to sue you in a court where I know it's going to go up to an appellate court, the Court of Appeals, that has favorable patent law yeah. for me. And yeah. if Sam is infringing my patent, he may want to sue me for invalidity of that patent in a court that is well known to have um, a tendency to invalidate patents. So what happened in the 60s and 70s, there was all this forum shopping. Patentees, patent owners were suing in courts where they knew they had the best shot on appeal and infringers were suing in courts where they knew they had the best shot of either a non-infringement finding or an invalidity finding when it went up on appeal. And that created this huge mess, and it was solved by creating the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. Patents are now special. No matter where you sue in the country, the appeal will go to the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, which is located in Washington, D.C. It's very unique in that way. I think it might be the only area of law in which the appeals will go to a specialized court. Which really is good for the business world. It introduces uniformity. and. We've been talking about patents, which which are inherently related to business, whether it's a woman or a man working in his or her garage, sort of a solo inventor, or Samsung or Apple, um, you know, multinational corporations. It's 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 a business right. Are there any? I don't even know how to word this uh, so that it resonates with uh, patent law. Are there any sort of humanitarian aspects to patent law? You can see why I'm asking this question with President Biden talking about suspending patent rights. 
Yeah. So, so I think Adele, it's a great question, and I do. I, I want to take it on. Before we do, I just want to say one more thing about the federal circuit. Please because, do. Uh, or actually, two two more things. First of all, the federal circuit, as this unusual court, actually has na- nationwide jurisdiction in a number of areas, not just patent law. I think it does trademarks as well. It does other sorts of things. The idea, and this is the second point here, the idea of the federal circuit was not just to avoid form shopping, but also to take a highly technical subject like patent law and bring together experts or people, you know, the judges would be people who were very familiar with patent law. Uh, they wouldn't see one or two cases on a regular basis. They'd see all these cases and bring them together so you could have a, a national body of law. Because I think that that helps answer your question earlier about why we don't have a single court for uh, civil rights issues and the like. I think that the notion there is that those those issues are also more geographically focused. You want to understand more. You want to be tied more to where particular civil rights may maybe different than, let's say, uh, Boston. I'm not going to say quite that, but certainly, but, certainly, you can understand. There's an argument that uh, you're going to the courts are going to be closer to the facts and what the situation is on the ground and how the state, better, yes. the state yes. laws work. Uh, if you're yeah. doing state laws instead of federal laws, uh, I'm not sure this is the way it works. This is the theory behind it. But let me get back to your question about humanitarian aspects. Um, There's always a consideration in patent law, uh, both internationally and and nationally, about what to do when you have have an emergency, a health emergency, for example. What do you do? A pandemic. A pandemic. What do you do when you have uh, somebody who's got a patent? Let's say you have somebody who has a patent on the life-saving drug. And if you have a patent, you have a right to prevent anybody else from practicing it. And let's say the person who has that patent on a life-saving drug, which everybody needs, stands up and says, you know, I'm just angry at the world today. I'm not going to let anybody else make this drug, and I'm not going to make any of it myself. (laughs) That is a legal concept. And, you know, they, they could certainly do that. Built into the patent system is a notion that the government, under certain circumstances, can force that person to grant a license. Uh, this is enshrined in something called the TRIPS agreement, which is wait, just. Wait, wait. A, yeah. So you just came up with a solution for the COVID patents. Can the government force these companies to grant license on COVID? I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead, but no, it's no, just- no. It's 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 a, it's an important it's an important consideration. There are uh, I think what we need to distinguish here is the difference between a compulsory license and uh-huh. a suspension of patent rights. Um, a compulsory license is where a government will say, okay, the owner of the patent must grant a license to the patents, which means that's not what President Biden was saying. Absolutely. Let me get there in a moment, because the the issue with that system is that that means that there's an additional cost built into anybody who's selling or making any of this life-saving drug, because they have to pay the licensing fee. So Which the is uh, anywhere from well, I don't know two three percent to seven eight percent. Is that depend, right? Depends. It depends entirely on what a reasonable royalty might be in that uh, industry. That be, in yeah. that industry, it could be a lot of money, especially when you're talking about massive massive uh, amounts of the vaccines or the drugs being made. A suspension of patent rights would be a way of simply saying, "Look, this issue is so overridingly important and saves so many lives." that we don't want anybody in this space to to hire lawyers or think about this in any way, shape or form, put any resources or any money into trying to figure out the rights. Just make the stuff and save the lives. And this is a philosophical debate. You could argue both ways on whether this is a good idea. Has has this suspension of patent rights ever happened before? 
I'm not in aware our, of, of any instance. Yeah. I know it's been, it's been talked about, but here in the U.S., I'm not aware of any instance in which it, it's actually happened. And I know that that President Biden um, struggled with this, this patent suspension mm-hmm. concept. There are about 60 countries now who have jumped on board and said, yeah, we should be suspending patent rights. And the United States was not one of the first you know, few, not even one of the first dozen. It's one of the ones that's really wagging behind with their uh, with this support for patent suspension, because it, it really does impact these big businesses, these companies that have invested all this time and energy and money in developing yeah. these And this goes back to that that issue that we were talking about earlier, which is the balance. Where is that balance between access to the public, to these inventions, to these vaccines? And then rewarding the innovation, incentivizing the innovation. Mm-hmm. So what people, don't, what people don't realize is that you know, there was a study done in 2019. It mm-hmm. costs over $2.5 billion, billion dollars to develop a new drug. And companies make that investment without knowing whether or not the drug is actually going to work. It's a risk. It, it's a risk. And you if need I, to, to incentivize that by saying, if this works and it's successful, we're going to give you that patent so that you can make this available now to the public. And, and I don't want us to take any size on this political mm-hmm. debate, but I want to add that there's this perception that pharma, pharmaceutical companies, uh, they making money hand over fist and this and that. Well, many of these big corporations have investors that represent school teachers, that represent firefighters, uh, police departments that are pulled into funds and they invest in these. So we should think of that also. This may actually impact the pensions of a lot of these people and we get into a sort of a broader discussion. Um, let's take a break here. Uh, so stay with me as Steve and Sam and I get into the perspective. Did you know? You can now preview our podcasts. That's right. Just click the podcast highlights button on our website, www.historybehindnews.com, and we will email you each episode's highlights and relevant links to news and history for free. Pretty cool, right? So, Steve, Sam, we discussed all this patent history, and this is what I want to know. And if it's your opinion, that's fine. You gentlemen practice law in one of the most prestigious law firms in the nation and teach patent law, so your opinion matters. What I want to know is this. What would our country be like without patents? If we go back to law school, this is like a hypothetical, right? <laughs> yeah, without patents or with weaker patents, would be better off as a nation. So I will jump off, and I know Sam and I are on slightly opposite sides of of the fence on this. Uh, I firmly believe that that the United States is where it is with technology. We are at the cutting edge of uh, technological developments, of innovation, of R and D. In, in large part because we do have a strong patent system. Companies know, invent, even individual inventors know that if they 
make the investment of time, money, mm. and resources, and they come up with a patentable invention and it's granted to them by the government, they will have a relatively strong patent right that they could use to protect their investment. Uh, I, I do think- Goes that back to that incentive that you've been talking about. Yeah, I, and, and I, I do think, like I've said before, there's a pendulum about how strong those patent rights should be. And there are times when I think that uh, patent rights may be leaning towards the, the too strong area, um, and then the pendulum swings back. But I, I absolutely believe having a strong patent system um, creates the foundation for the R&D and innovation that, that we see today uh, in, our, in our country. And, and, Sam, and, what do you think? Well, here's Steve and I are in complete agreement about this aspect of it, which is that a strong patent. You're system, taking the excitement away. I thought there's going no, to be a fight. No, here. <laughs> we, we, we we might we might have we might have a fight because I think we're Steve. First of all, strong patent system. I think it's very important. I think it's essential. I think it's useful uh, for our economy, uh, for getting investors comfortable with putting huge amounts of money into the development of drugs or machines or the like that are useful uh, and that they can market. Where Steve and I, I think, disagree is what would happen if you loosened the protections or, or, or lightened the protections for patents slightly. I think that uh, there's a concern that if you protect patents too much, then what you're doing is you're choking off the individual inventor, the man or woman working in their garage who does have the eureka moment or who says, wow, I've worked in this industry for 30 years and I know a better way to do something. And then they go out and they say, wow, I'm going, to, I'm going to invent this thing. And suddenly they find that their way is blocked by a thicket of patents uh, owned by large corporations. And there's no way to get around them. And they're not. And, and, and this is the and, important part. Not even good patents sometimes. Sometimes not great patents that the companies were just able. Sort to of numerosity make. here. Number. Exactly. But, exactly. But, but that, that, that was a problem in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. But in today's day and age where you have investors that are actively looking for patents to, to purchase, to assert, to partner up with. And we see that all the time. The investment community knows that you can make a lot of money out of patents. And we, we know of situations where individual inventors have gotten that backing and they've gone out and they've sued and they've won. I mean, even the gentleman who developed the intermittent wipers in the 60s and 70s, he had a flash of genius. Came there up was a movie about that. A movie about yeah. that. But, no, but Steve, about that. Steve you raised the entire industry and he won. But your point raises yet still another consideration, which is if you have extremely strong patent protection, what you've done is you've increased the value of individual patents. And suddenly you've got investors who are not inventors going out and hunting for those patents, which exist, which they can bring a certain court against major corporations who are themselves innovators and then hold those companies up, either extort, essentially extort them uh, and say, look, it's just going to cost you so much to, uh, to litigate this that you better pay me a settlement or else they're going to go in court and they're going to get a huge victory for a patent that, quite frankly, is not something that should have been issued in the first place. And, you're, and that's you're, a danger as well. There's a counter argument to that. Yeah. Go ahead. You're go actually ahead. proving my point, Sam, about how there's a pendulum that needs to swing back and forth. And you're right. And that's what I started off with, which is if the patents are too strong, you need to bring the pendulum back. And, and Adele, this is where Steve and, I, Steve and I are in complete agreement, which is that, that the history of the country shows 
uh, as Steve said, that there's been a push, a, a, a concern about where that balance should be. And the pendulum has swung back and forth. Uh, we all think that it shouldn't be, I think Steve and I agree, it shouldn't be in it with one extreme or the other. Uh, but when you get down into the details, it's in each individual case, how, how much protection should you get from having a patent? Uh, and what are the opportunities you know, available to people who wanna challenge that patent and say, look, it really, this is obvious. This is anticipated. This is something that existed already and it shouldn't have issued in the first place. And I think those are those are the considerations we need to keep playing with as a nation in terms of policy. Wonderful. Well, Steve and Sam, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel.News anytime. And for our listeners, if you have any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us. What's your perspective? The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. <music>